all aboard. Even as a preteen, I immediately understood the romance of an overnight train ride. For a couple of years during the 1960s, my mother, my two brothers, and I took the California Zephyr from Chicago to Colorado for an Aspen skiing vacation. My father, who was not a skier, would drive us in from the suburbs and drop us off at Union Station in Chicago, one of the few times we had been to the big city. My mother might have been holding my younger brother Andy's hand, but Ralph and I were old enough to march along side by side. I always felt great pride in our little tableau as we entered the station. This was in the days when my mother still went to the beauty store to get her short brown hair permed into a tousled bob, decorated with a small oval gold barrette, when she wore bright red lipstick and a string of white poppet beads, when people told her that she looked like Ingrid Bergman, when getting dressed up to go on a train was still de rigueur, and before my mother abandoned all these touches of glamour and happily embraced the everyday practicality of an unadorned look. I imagine that people stopped to look at us striding along and asked each other, Is that a famous family or something? They sure look important. Stepping into the Great Hall of Union Station was like walking into a foreign kingdom. The five-story atrium, topped by a barrel-vaulted glass ceiling, was bordered by colonnades, each top with a decorative flourish of foliage surrounding a torch. Lines of long oak benches were filled with dispirited travelers guarding bags at their feet. Some stretched out on the bench for a hard nap. Again, I would feel a little flush of superiority. People were milling aimlessly around us, but we had purpose. The five o'clock California Zephyr was waiting for us, and to top it off, my mother had gotten us all roomettes in the train. We would be sleeping on a comfortable bed, not a chair or a bench. We strode across the great hall and triumphantly entered the tunnel marked To All Trains. The dank and dark train platform was alive with energy. Passengers and their well-wishers jockeyed for position between the crisscrossing red caps, navigating their loaded carts. I struggled to keep up as our red cap bobbed and weaved through the crowd. I would slow down to gaze at the power of the gleaming wheels ready to whisk us across the country and listen to the plunking noise of hidden dripping water. Occasionally the restless ambient noise was punctuated by a blast of escaping steam from the undercarriage, a full-bodied sigh of awakening beast. As soon as we got on the train we were greeted by a porter who showed us to our roomettes and oriented us to the Vista Dome observation deck and the dining car. We settled into our compartments and waited for the engine's stirring vibrations and the conductor's cry of, All aboard! Ours was a close-knit family with attentive and loving parents, but in everyday life, my brothers and I were going in different directions to football, field hockey, band practice, or piano lessons. However, for the next 20 hours on the train, we would all be doing exactly the same things at the same time, looking out the windows together, eating together, playing games or cards together, and sleeping in immediately adjacent roomettes. Once we arrived at Aspen and started skiing, we would disperse across the mountain, often finding other friends to ski with. I reveled in the compact functionality of the roomette, its name itself announcing its miniaturization. A petite sink folded out of the wall over the toilet, which doubled as an additional chair when the family crowded into one roomette to play games. There was a couch overlooking the window where we watched the dimming lights of the jumbled industrial landscape give way to the monotony of flat Illinois farms. Later in the evening, the porter would show up and fold out the couch into a narrow bed, complete with a pillow and crisp white all-cotton sheets covered with a rough brown blanket. 
A similar bunk bed folded out of the wall above, but its open edge was further equipped with interlacing straps to prevent the occupant from tumbling out. I loved the upper bunk. Perhaps I was unconsciously reliving some sort of in utero experience. As the train gently rocked throughout the night, I would first roll against the cool metal wall, and then across to the comforting sling of the sturdy mesh straps. Even today, if it wasn't so difficult to make a bed and change sheets, I would still opt for a bed against a wall and lean against its secure permanence. I remember the rough upholstery of the couch that tickled my bare legs as I played word games with my mother. One of the favorites was called Hangman, a particularly grisly version of the game show Wheel of Fortune. I would guess the letters to my mother's hidden word, and for every wrong letter my mother would add another portion of the picture. The scaffolding, the noose, and then the head, arms, and legs of the doomed victim. My goal was to guess the word before the agonizing lynching was complete. There was much bantering about the details of the drawing. Should my mother be required to sequentially draw each finger, or was it permissible to draw the entire hand in one turn? Could she add both eyes at once, or must she do them one by one? Did the figure have to have hair? Another game was Giotto, where my mother had to figure out my five-letter word in a process of elimination involving individual letters. Out of all the five-letter words in the world, once she correctly guessed my word, milky, on the first try. We were both overwhelmed that blind luck could overcome immense improbability, giving credence to the possibility of winning a lottery or getting struck by lightning. Once we tired of word games, my mother let us go exploring. We scuttled up and down the narrow aisles in front of the roomettes and then crossed over into the next car. I would open the heavy door with a great heave-ho, feel the cold rush of night air, and then momentarily stand in the darkness between the cars. In our roomette, the train rocked gently, but with my feet placed on either side of the coupling, I could feel one car abruptly jerk in relation to the other. I would wonder if it had ever happened that the train cars became uncoupled at the exact moment a young girl was standing with one foot on each side. After all, my mother had guessed Milky on the first try. I would quickly move into the next car, not wanting to dwell on the agony of the extreme splits that would result if the car separated just as I stood there. The rhythmic sounds of the clacking tracks provided a steady and comforting backdrop throughout the ride, reinforcing the unspooling miles as we raced westward across the Great Plains. If I wanted to get a direct sense of movement, I could peer down into the flushing toilet and see the actual tracks running by. I remember wondering why the toilet had a little message requesting that it not be flushed while standing in the station. As a preteen, my critical thinking skills were still so rudimentary that I didn't put it together that passenger trains had the unsavory practice of dumping raw sewage on the tracks. As with most issues involving effluent, it's probably best to operate on a need-to-know basis, so I'm grateful that the glamour of train travel wasn't dampened by the appalling visual of a knotted trail stretching behind the tracks. The California Zephyr stopped in Omaha around midnight. I recall waking to the conductor's cries of, Omaha! Omaha! I would poke my head through the webbing straps to peek outside the window. The few passengers milling about might be surprised to see an apparently decapitated but smiling head hanging upside down from the upper corner of the window. The train platform was poorly lit, with a few moths dancing around the weak fluorescent lights that swayed in the breeze. 
I pitied those Omaha passengers whose late start meant that they could not enjoy a full night in the sleeper car. The first activity in the morning was to check the little cubby where I had stored my shoes. Sometime in the depths of the night, the porter would open the cubby from the door on the aisle side, take the shoes out, shine them, and then return them. As a child growing up in an all-white suburb, the porters, all African-American, were a novel experience. Their dark, dark skin contrasted both with their bright smiles and the equally bright white of their uniform jacket. To my inexperienced eyes, they all looked like Louis Armstrong, and I remember them as unfailingly kind and patient with children. In the morning, I would reach into the cubby with great anticipation and pull out my gleaming shoes. I always remembered to put a dingy coin in my penny loafers. Inevitably, the porter would shine Lincoln to a high gloss. Proudly wearing my newly shined shoes, I would head off to the dining car for breakfast. As a family, we never went out to eat, so the dining car was one of my first restaurant experiences. Our table had a bright white tablecloth and cloth napkins, forks and knives that felt heavy in my hand, and ice water that trembled in perspiring glasses. I watched as uniformed waiters delivered platters of food while nimbly accommodating the train's lurches. The menu was far vaster than anything I had experienced. The signature breakfast entree was some sort of deep-fried French toast. I would pierce the swollen and crispy toast and absorb the odor of the escaping plume of steam. Tufts of bread emerging from the cracked exterior were then bent low by my generous addition of butter and syrup. A little amber droplet might hang off the edge of the toast, swaying in harmony with the clacking tracks. Of course, now I realize that the French toast could have been simply a slice of wonder bread dunked into a bubbling and unregulated vat of ancient lard, oil, grease, or who knows what, but I was so completely enveloped in the triumvirate of sight, smell, and taste that I had no interest in engaging a more discerning gray matter. As soon as we finished breakfast, we would scamper up to the second level of the glass-stone vista car to watch the scenery unfold as we headed into the Rockies. This part of the trip was like a slow-motion roller coaster ride. The train clung to the side of steep canyons, and the wheels let out unnerving shrieks as the train banked around hairpin curves. Passengers might rush to the downhill side of the train to get a better look at the valley below. But I would fear that this extra weight was the tipping factor that would send us all plunging off the tracks. I was always grateful when we pulled into our final destination at Glenwood Springs. Of the skiing itself, truthfully, I don't remember any specific details. My mother continued to take the family skiing for the next 30 years, but the pleasant and affirming togetherness of the California Zephyr was quickly replaced with the anxious cattle car experience of air travel. My lifetime of skiing memories has merged. My train trips remain discreet and vivid events that can only be held alive by memory. Though tempted, I have never taken an overnight train ride, knowing that the inevitable diminished reality would tarnish my carefully tended memories. Several years ago, my husband and I took our then young children on a skiing vacation, and on the way home our plane got stranded in Minneapolis. We struggled to find a single hotel room for the four of us. We had waved goodbye to a lot of money for this memorable trip. The airline tickets, the ski lodge, rental equipment. And yet, when I asked our son what his favorite part of the trip was, he said, Remember when all of us had to sleep together in one room and we got cozy on the bed and watched movies together? That was my favorite part of the vacation. I knew just what he meant. 
but I am also more than happy to avoid reliving that cramped hotel experience in order to keep his memory intact.'